We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 17 this morning. I'd invite you to look with me there. Matthew 17. This is a new chapter, and it's, uh, it's sort of a start with a, a theme that I was advised when I start this series to explain a little bit, and that is, this is the theme of Christ's transfiguration. Christ's transfiguration. Transfiguration is a word that is really only used in my mind, in my life here. I don't hear the word transfigured or something is transfigure, uh, transfigured one way or the other in any other context. And so sometimes when you have a Bible word or a theology word, it bears a little bit of explanation or you're just going to kind of tune out. And I want you to tune in because the transfiguration of Christ is uh, the launch to what lessons Jesus wants his disciples to learn. Uh, This event is the beginning of this flow of thought or these different episodes and units that will follow. It's uh, lessons from the transfiguration. So you got to know what is the transfiguration to know what lessons need to follow from that event that you need to learn. And uh, transfiguration is a word that in, in the English you have trans and figuration, and the, that word trans always means a cross. So you're, you're moving across from one place to another. What, what does that mean? Well, we're moving from the natural realm to the supernatural realm with Christ in this event. Christ is fully God and fully man at the same time, and The transfiguration is where he takes Peter, James, and John atop a high mountain and literally is as if peeling back his humanness in front of them. And his glory is shown forth in a way that is unforgettable to Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John, his most intimate three apostles, his three best friends out of the 12 are exposed to the glory of God in an event that will be forever etched in their minds and in their hearts as they take the mantle of ministry on after Jesus leaves. It's an important event, the transfiguration of Christ. This event is the locus or the foundation for all the key lessons that will follow. And what we're going to find in chapter 17 is that these lessons are learned over a period of time. They're not lessons that they immediately get and understand, but just like the Lord is patient with them, he's patient with us, and uh, we need to learn these lessons as well. Jesus is going to leave the mission in the hands of these mere men, just like we are just mere human beings here conducting the mission on earth for Christ, and we need to learn from the transfiguration. So let me read this event to you now, verses 1 through 8. Verse 1, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and its clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Mo- and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. And Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. Let's stop there. What's the first lesson? The first lesson from the transfiguration, and there's going to be five of them over this sermon series, over chapter 17. Um, Lesson one is what we're covering this morning. The first lesson is be willing to listen to Jesus. You could ask yourself, am I being a listener to Jesus, my teacher? Am I listening to Jesus? The story begins with Christ revealing his glory. The kind of first sub point there, I'm going to just tell it in kind of story form. Christ reveals his glory. When did he do it? Well, it was six days. Verse 1 says six six days after Jesus is talking um, to them, instructing them about taking up their cross. Remember, we've been talking about that. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going to take up his cross. And his big challenge to them is, you're going to have to follow me even at risk of death and have a mindset that you're willing to follow me no matter what the cost is. And that's represented by this challenge to take up the cross. He's targeting the 12 here. And he's saying in this last kind of lap of ministry. He's been with them for two years, two and a half years, and now he's in this last lap, and he's saying, I'm headed to Jerusalem, and you're going to have to take up this high charge to follow me. And what he does here is unique because he narrows the focus from the 12 at this point to three, his three most intimate friends, like three best friends. We are going to go on a walking trip, kind of like we would say, let's go on a road trip. And this is These are lessons that are to be etched in the minds of Peter, James, and John that they will never forget. It's six days after he's given this challenge that he goes on this trek and he he took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain. And notice the language here, by themselves. It's time for ultimate intimacy. Something that'll be a memorable, unforgettable journey. They're going up a mountain. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we're going to reference it later, is where Peter recalls what he learned from this event. It's marked in their lives. It's an unbelievable glory scene. It's a glory-infused um, teaching moment for their development. This is something that stands alone as an event. And it's an immediate glory moment that sinks in over time. Now, you know, as we think about learning lessons from Jesus, a lot of times, if you're like me, you're as hard-headed as these disciples were, and it takes a lot of time to get through, you know, the old noggin. And uh, the Lord doesn't give up on us as he teaches us. You want to have, it's far better to have a hard head than a hard heart. So anyway, in progressive sanctification, we learn lessons and we have a lot of lessons that still need to be learned. Are you with me? Amen. That's what they're doing and that's what we need to resonate with. Who are these three? Well, Peter, the foot-shaped mouth spokesperson who's a verbal processor, just verbal processor, just like me. And the more, the older I get, the more I go, man, I really am like Peter and uh, not in a good way. All that to say, He was the spokesperson for the apostles. 
He uh, publicly declared Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Matthew 16, 16, the chapter before. James and John are brothers. These are the, uh, the, the brothers who are the sons of thunder, the sons of Bonerges. They are the ones who... Um, said, Christ, let's call fire down from heaven, uh, you know, and, and destroy these people who are mocking you. Uh, they were fiery, and I think James was emboldened by his brother, uh, not always in a good way, and yet they were truly committed disciples. They were the ones who dropped their nets when Jesus said, follow me as fishermen, and James was that leader. He was an early martyr in the church. He gave his life early in the book of Acts after Stephen. He was an early martyr. And then you have John. John, the beloved disciple, the one that was intimate with the Lord in terms of friendship and heart connection and and the one who testified of laying back and reclining um, against uh, the chest of Jesus Christ, which is an amazing privilege, um, friends with the divine Savior. This is John. So what's the high mountain? The mountain is unnamed here. It uh, traditionally is Mount Tabor, and that would, Tabor, rather, that's an 1,880-foot high ascent. Um, it's a smaller mountain in that area, actually, compared to the mount I think they climbed. But Mount Tabor is, uh, uh, it's kind of a tourist attraction, I think, south of Galilee. They were in Caesarea Philippi, north of Galilee, and so it would have been a 40-mile trek down south to Galilee and southeast to that mountain to climb that. That's um, what's kind of traditionally known as Mount Transfiguration. But more logically, they were looking to the north from Caesarea Philippi, and uh, it was Mount Hermon, which ascends 9,232 feet. Now that's now we're in Alaska. I mean, now, now we're good, right? They, they had to walk 20 miles there. I don't know if it was part of the six-day journey or six days later they took the journey. But to walk 20 miles north um, of Caesarea Philippi, this would be a snow-clad um, sort of uh, area and snow-capped area that they were ascending to. So it was high ascension. It was a rite of passage. It was a teaching experience through a grueling climb. And um, the disciples sort of were having a physical catharsis because they were in despair over the news that Jesus had just given them. Remember, he said, I have to go to Jerusalem, verse 21 of chapter 16. I have to suffer many things from the elders, from the chief priests, from the scribes, from the religious leaders who should know better and be killed and on the third day be raised. They didn't really think about him being raised. They were just thinking about him being killed, suffering just, with, unjust, with, with unjust measures, and to be sent away, he would depart from them forever. That's what they were thinking. And they were sad by this, and um, they were climbing a mountain with this in mind. Luke 9.32 says that when they get to the top, before Jesus transfigures, they fall asleep with fatigue from despair. Just like when they were at Garden of Gethsemane, they were heavy laden and burdened with the idea of Jesus's near death. His death would undoubtedly mean their death by association. Remember Peter, when he denied the Lord, that that danger zone was something that they likewise were feeling. And Jesus wants to cause them to work through that. And understand that Jesus needs to suffer before he can be exalted. There's a cross before the crown. There's humility before exaltation. They need to get that lesson. And so let's go on a 9,000 foot hike up a mountain. 
Um, there are certain pastors in the room that do things like that. In Alaska, I don't do that. But, but there are certain people who do, and they enjoy that. And they, they, these disciples are moving heavenward. And they're going by themselves, verse 1, with Jesus. There's intimacy pictured here. There's the idea of anticipation. You will see something amazing that I'm going to show you. And this is the privilege, the high privilege we have as Christians, where the illumination of the Holy Spirit in our own hearts gives us this kind of intimacy with the Lord where we walk with him. Whether we're hiking up a mountain or not, we have him in our hearts and we see his face through faith. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, light shines out of darkness. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We, we know what this feels like in our own hearts. Um, Luke's account says that it was eight days later. Don't get tripped up on that. Matthew and Mark both say six days. Luke's a doctor. He just includes the weekend because he's a doctor and he's detailed and he just is that way. Um, he could be talking about, you know, where Christ... Uh, where Peter proclaims Christ as Messiah as one part of this, and then at the end, the transfiguration and six days in the middle. Not sure, but it's just author's perspective stuff. Um, all that to say, they're, they're headed up. They're headed up the mountain. And quickly in verse 2, things change. Look at verse 2. When they got to the top, and he was transfigured before them, and his face Face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Imagine that. First focus is on the face. Shone like the sun. Just, just in brilliance where you can't even look at the face of Christ suddenly. The word transfigure in the original language is metamorphosized. It's the idea of something being completely changed. Luke's account in Luke 9, 28 says, Christ face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. It's an emphasis of this sun-like radiance coming from the face of Jesus and clothes that's white. White in the sense, not like the color white, but a brilliance that you can barely even stand to look at because it's, it's effulgent glory that's that's manifesting itself back at you. If you've ever looked at the sun, which would be completely ill-advised to do, don't do it, kids. But when we do it, we look and you see colors out of your, you know, uh, the reflection out of how your eye is reacting visually to what you're not supposed to look at. I think that's what's happening as they look into the face of Christ and look at his persona and brilliance. This is the Shekinah glory, by the way. This is the same glory of God that has been on display throughout Bible history. You remember uh, Pastor Nathan mentioned the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night that led the children of Israel for 40 years through the wanderings of of the wilderness. Um, This is the fire of God on display. It's the glory that that was shown at Mount Sinai when... Moses received the law and it was written by the finger of God, the glory and the thunder and lightning display of the presence of God that was manifest, this manifestation of the glory of God that's in the inner sanctum of the tabernacle worship over the Ark of the Covenant, over the Holy of Holies. It's the unapproachable glory of God that's behind the curtain. It's the glory that, that manifests itself 
in the temple when Solomon completed the task that his father David had been given to build and architect and, and to um, have completed the project of the building of the temple, the glory of God um, consumed the place and all the priests fell down. The glory that is the same glory that departed that temple in Ezekiel ten eighteen, when through idolatry and disobedience, Israel had rejected the law of God and rejected his accountability. And the Lord wrote Ichabod over Israel and the glory departed. Ezekiel again, ten eighteen, and Israel was exiled to Babylonian captivity. It's the glory then that returned 400 years later after the intertestamental period of darkness that shone brightly in the clouds when the angels of the Lord said, glory to God, Hosanna, um, the, the Lord is here. And Jesus was born and his incarnation was on display. And this same glory is the glory that now resides in our hearts as the church in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who's the spirit. You say, what does that mean? Well, Moses, when he was writing the law, had glory shown on his face. You'll remember that story. And he had to put a veil over his face because it was a a glory that would be depleting And it would be fading away because it was representing sort of half the story and the giving of the law. There was glory in that, but the full story is the giving of the law and grace. And the grace of the gospel has been met with our hearts and we believed it. And in that belief, we have glory in our hearts. And 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says we're... We have this treasure in jars of clay. We're the earthenware vessels with the gospel inside, the surpassing power of God. So Jesus, back to our passage, has an illumined face. His clothes are white as light. This is brilliance that will be shown at Christ's resurrection with the angels around the tomb that's reflecting off of them. But this is an apex expression of Christ's deity that's unparalleled. In John 1.14, John, who was there, records this about that event. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Then later at the end of his life and ministry in 1 John, he wrote this in the first four verses. He said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made, here it is, manifest and we have seen it we've seen it and testified to it proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the father and was made manifest or manifest to us so this brilliance of god on the face of christ was manifest to us and then peter in second peter wrote this he was there for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you in other words this was not a made-up story When we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it. We saw it. And this testimony um, bled down into the church. The author of Hebrews 1 to 3, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 said this. He said, in the last days, he's spoken to us by his son, verse 2, and he's he's, whom he, he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
In verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. This author is reflecting on the testimony of this event, the radiance of the glory of God. His brilliance was, back to Matthew 17, white as light. Luke's account says that Jesus was praying. It says in Luke 9, 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. So he's praying and then suddenly Christ's um, almost incomprehensibly is, is turned inside out. It's like a, like a t-shirt pulled off where it's inside out. It's like all of his humanness is peeled back. And what was veiling this glory, which to the naked eye, you just saw Jesus, he's human. You know he's deity. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You're hearing uh, all the connections of the prophecies that are centering on Jesus. And I'm embracing him as God by faith. You're seeing miracles. But all of a sudden, humanity on the outside becomes to the background where the deity that's on the inside comes to the foreground. So it's deity first, and then you go, yeah, and he is also the same Jesus Christ who's fully human, as opposed to his humanity, where we say, and we know he is Jesus Christ, fully human, we know he's also divine. This is in reverse now in this moment. People have loved the glory of God and longed for the glory of God. We all do, but we're also in dread of the glory of God. You have to know that Peter, James, and John were protected in this event from being immediately sort of obliterated by the glory of God. Jacob wrestled with the Lord, Genesis 32, 26. He said, I'll not let you go unless you bless me. Moses said in Exodus 33, 18, please show me your glory. God said in verse 20, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And then he said, but there's a place I'll put you in the cleft of a rock and I'll put my hand over you until I've passed by and then I'll take my hand away and you shall see my back. My face shall not be seen. There's a protection there. Remember the story in Judges chapter 13 when, when Manoah and his wife were, it was announced by the angel of the Lord that they would give birth um, to a son named Samson and Samson would be this powerful judge who would have to take the Nazarite vow and not have his hair cut and all these things. And after the angel of the Lord left, Manoah said in verse 22 of Judges 13, we shall surely die for we have seen God. But his wife, who was rational, she says, um, if the Lord had meant to kill us, we would not have, he would not have accepted a burnt offering or grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or announced to us such things as these. In other words, we're going to have the sun. We're not going to die. <laughs> Isaiah's vision, Isaiah 6, we've referenced this a lot. The year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah goes into the temple. He saw the Lord. Verse 5, he says, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of unclean the people of unclean lips, my, for my eyes have seen the king of the Lord of hosts. He felt like he was going to die. And then the account of Joshua in the post-exilic, in other words, when Israel was returning from exile after the fall of Jerusalem, it was right at that teetering point. Zechariah 3, 1 to 6, you have Joshua the high priest. He's standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan is accusing him of what? Of, of having filthy garments, of being clothed in sin. You represent the sinfulness of Jerusalem. And then the angel of the Lord, who is Christ, 
in that moment at Joshua's right hand said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away. I will clothe you with pure vestments. I'll put a clean turban on your head. I'll clothe you with garments of grace. My word there, but that is what it is. It's the gospel. The reason we can stand before the Lord and not be immediately sent to hell is because of grace, is because of this intervention. Isaiah 6, the angel takes the coal from the altar, which is a symbol of grace on the lips of Isaiah. Here you have the covering of grace. And in Peter, James, and John's case, they were covered by grace, protected. Well, first of all, Christ reveals his glory. Well, secondly, in this um, story, Christ initiates mixed responses. Now, Jesus doesn't want mixed responses. This is part of the lessons that need to be learned, but there are mixed responses. Look at verse 2. It says, he was transfigured. And then verse 3, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. This is the first part of these first responders. There's first responders here, Moses and Elijah, along with the three. Now you have two more. It's an incredible display of glory. Luke's account said that Peter, James, and John had fallen asleep with fatigue. Suddenly, Christ is transfigured, and Moses and Elijah are there, and the glory of God is reflecting between, bouncing off between the three of them. And as that's happening, they're having a conversation. Imagine this. This is an incredible thing to think about. Um, Moses and Elijah, both recognized by name, and, I mean, there, there's no, like, you know, image or picture that people are picking up on. How do we even know it's Moses and Elijah? Well, it says Jesus is talking to him, so Jesus probably identified him as such, <laughs> and we can believe Jesus. Matthew wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so there's the witness of the Holy Spirit that this is Moses and Elijah, but it is an interesting question to think about. They're recognized as Moses and Elijah. This is who you are. Moses from 400 um, B.C., is talking to Elijah or with Elijah, who is 800 BC. So they're displaced in time from each other. But hey, this is a scene of heaven. So those rules don't apply. Let's all just talk about the redemption story about how we got here. Amazing. The, the glory of Christ is on display with effulgence, blazing sunlight glory beaming from himself. And yet he's conversing with Moses and Elijah in front of Peter, James, and John. There's a point to all of this, and I want to unfold it carefully. You have to ask, why were these patriarchs here first and foremost? Well, Moses represents, as the central figure of the Old Testament, he really represents the Old Testament gospel redemption story. He's the one that's reaching back to the, the patriarch Abraham and the promise that was made to him that I will give you a land and seed and blessing and a people of God. And as part of that process, Moses comes as this redeemer figure to redeem Israel out from under the bondage of Pharaoh, out from the bondage of paganism into the wandering of the wilderness and all the miracles and all of the dynamics to get these people to the promised land is a picture of saving grace bought out from the bondage of slavery to be redeemed. So Moses is sort of reaching backward in the story. And then Elijah, as the prophet of prophets, is reaching forward in the story, bridging the gap from you. This all is a picture of the coming of Christ and the gospel. This Old Testament gospel will be fulfilled in the Lamb of God. And Elijah is this incredible prophet who's the defender of God's reputation. 
he's, he's the, the combatant against the pagan world to slay idolatry. He represents all the line of all the prophets and the predictions of Messiah. So Moses, the author of the Pentateuch, the author of the law, the picture of deliverance, and Elijah, who's showing the soon coming and great deliverer. Both of them are representing all of the law and all of the prophets of the Old Testament. Remember, Jesus on the road to Emmaus at resurrection would say to those two on that road, um, it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It was all, always, all about me. That's what Jesus was saying. It's a scene of glory that is an incredible, unfathomable validation of who Christ is under the witness of, by the mouth of two witnesses, Moses and Elijah. This is Christ. This is God. This is his glory. So what were they all talking about? That's of interest to me. They're having a conversation. Matthew doesn't say explicitly anything about what they're talking about. It just says they're talking. The point is kind of underneath the surface here. Uh, Luke's account, though, says exactly what they were talking about. It says, behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. This is Luke 9, verse 30 and 31, who appeared in glory And spoke, this is what they spoke about. They spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, how would a conversation like this kind of build? You say, well, Moses is saying, well, man, it was tough. 40 years wandering in the wilderness, people who were discontented. And wow, what happened to the sons of Korah where they were swallowed up? And oh man, it was hard to run for those fiery serpents. And I was thankful for the bronze uh, serpent that I was able to hold up at that point. And, and what about when I was standing there early on um, and at the Red Sea and, and, and then finally it parted and, and we made it narrowly with uh, a narrow rescue and escape and then, and then all the way up to the promised land. And yeah, I know I sinned and, and I was unable to enter, but the children of Israel were. So it was all for a purpose. And it was all leading up to a point, a point in time right now that you're, that you're at in this story where you're getting ready to go to Jerusalem. I'm beginning to connect the dots there. And Elijah goes, yeah, and I had to take on the prophets of Baal and that was really hard. And, but fire came from heaven and it was amazing. And I had a glorious day. Then I got really depressed and was running from Jezebel and terrified by that. And all of that was for this purpose to show that the prophecies are true about you. And here you are transfigured in glory, the picture of heaven. But before we get to heaven, you're supposed to depart and go into suffering, pain and humility and the cross. And I'm connecting the dots. That conversation's happening right in front of Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John that were depressed. They were burdened. They didn't want this plan. They were, they were, they were heavy laden. They were falling asleep, just like in the Garden of Gethsemane, how they can't tarry for an hour and the Lord keeps coming back and says, can't you wake up? Can't you wake up? I'm suffering. And it's the same dynamic where they're just heavy laden. And the Lord has Moses and Elijah to show up to converse about this as a illustrative display of all the dots can be connected. All the puzzle pieces of the redemption story can make sense. I really am supposed to go and suffer first before heaven. That's the point. That's the summary of this conversation. Jesus was speaking to them about his departure 
which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. This is exactly what he just told them in verse 21 of chapter 16. What's Peter's response? Oh, I get it. You know, I know I blew it before and I said, you know, this should never happen to you. And you had to call me Satan and get behind me, you know, for me to get behind you and all that. I know you rebuked me, but now I get it. You've got to suffer first and then you get glory. I got it. No, that's not what he does at all. He goes back to his old thinking and says, nope, we got heaven right now. We don't got to go down to Jerusalem, Jesus. Let's just call it good. Let's hit pause on the TiVo. Let's call it good. Let's put three tabernacles together and just worship you, heaven on earth. I'm good. That's what he does. And I I hate to be too hard on him. Imagine what you would do if you were in this situation. Verse 4, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I mean, he's asking permission. He's trying to be noble. It's good. It's a good thing. If you wish, I'll make three tents here. I'll construct it like the Feast of Booths. We'll just, we'll make tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. We'll set it all up. I don't think he's worshiping Moses and Elijah on equal footing with Jesus. I don't think that's what's going on, but I do think he's trying to be pragmatic. This is actually the sin of the church. This is what we can be tempted to do to say, how do we catalyze glory? How do we make it happen? How do we capture glory? How do we, how do we whoop up the fellowship and make it strong here with, with program or dynamics or things we can build or construct? You can't do it. You can't do it. The glory comes with God's will unfolding in the way that he wants it to unfold. That's the glory of God. The glory of God is on display in the soon coming suffering that Peter doesn't want to deal with. He's trying to do the right thing, but he's trying to do it through pragmatics. He's like the little boy um, from the South who collects all the fireflies, puts them in the jar and closes it up and says, look what I've got. And then the fireflies just start to die. I may or may not have done that a lot as a kid, but don't worry about it. It's... um. It does. It suffocates things to try to program for it with your own strength. Peter wanted to capture the moment and say, he's saying we have heaven, but he has a lapse of judgment. He won't see the redemption puzzle. Well, that's, those are the first responders. You have Moses, Elijah, then the three, or, or you say Peter, speaking for the three. And then you have the second responder. Look at verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is God. What's scary here is the beginning of the verse is showing Peter is just talking. He's trying to sell this idea. He was still speaking. Peter's like, look, we can do it. We can do it. We can do it. And then God the Father intervenes. This is the ultimate intervention. The glory cloud comes in. Think about the gaskets that would be bursting or the circuits that would be bursting in Peter, James, and John's minds. You've got the glory, the blazing sunlight glory coming off the face of Jesus, bouncing off of Moses and Elijah. They're talking about redemption. And, and then you have this glory cloud come over top of that, and that's God the Father with the ultimate overvoice that's interrupting Peter. Peter, who's verbally processing, Peter... Stop. Just stop. And don't listen to Peter. Listen to Jesus. Listen to my son. That's what he's saying. The other realm shows up. 
the ultimate corrective. It's the bright cloud that overshadowed them. Shining brilliance. The Father's foreboding presence. What does he say? He says exactly what he said at Christ's baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You remember that? With one little addition, listen to him. That's the thing that makes this parallel statement distinguishable. Uh, The first statement over Christ was at the beginning of Christ's ministry. This is the Messiah. This is the son of God. The spirit of God's resting on him. He'll be empowered to do his mission and ministry, to preach, empower the kingdom of God, follow him. He's the Messiah and people are following him. Now book in that with this second statement. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to what? Listen to the fact that this empowered king who's come to show you the kingdom has to do it in a way that maybe is surprising you. He's got to do it through suffering and sacrifice. And humility, it's the cross before the crown, it's sacrifice before exaltation. It's to be crushed. It's what they did not want to hear. And the father is saying, this is my beloved son, it's the same one. Now listen to what he said. Listen to the harder thing that he just said. Well, the third responders, verse 6, are the disciples. Now, not Peter flying solo. It's the disciples who were acting in a trio in unison. And I think they did listen because of their response. Verse six, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Now the question is, did they fall on their faces because of the presence of the Lord or because the Lord said, listen to what Jesus said had to happen? And the answer is yes. I think both. I think both. Um, It's a step harder, it's difficult, and they were hearing this prediction in terms of the reality of it. And they fell down in a posture of submission um, under the demonstrative presence of the Lord. Anytime you're in the presence of the Lord, like I said before, this is dangerous. You remember Nadab and Abihu who offered strange fire in Leviticus 10.1, unauthorized fire. Leviticus 10.2, the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Judges 13, 22, already talked about Manoah, said, we shall surely die. We have seen God, 2 Samuel 6, 7. Remember the anger of the Lord that was kindled against Uzzah who touched the ark. The ark was wobbling. He stabilized it. God struck him down there because of his error and he died beside the ark. Isaiah 6, 5, Isaiah is pronouncing a curse on himself. Woe is me, I'm lost because he's seed in the Lord. Isaiah, Ezekiel 1, 28 is where Ezekiel saw the vision of the end times and saw the throne of God and all of the incredible wheels of glory around the throne. And it says, when I saw it, I fell on my face. Luke 2, 9, the angel of the Lord appeared and the glory of the Lord shone around and the shepherds, they were filled with fear. John 18, 6, when in the garden, Jesus is protecting his disciples that are scattering and the the Roman centurion are coming. And Jesus says in response, when they're calling out, where's Jesus? He says, I am he. And they drew back and fell to the ground. Luke 28, 1 to 4, there was a great earthquake around the tomb. The angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance, which is the angel of the Lord, which is a reflection of God's glory, was like lightning. And his 
clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Remember Saul, who was going to persecute the church at Damascus in Acts 9, 3. Uh, As he approached it, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Revelation 1, 14 through 17 is where John, who's now aged and exiled on the island of Patmos, exiled there till his death. He sees the revelation of Jesus in Revelation 1, 14. The hairs of his head were white like wool, white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Says the Lord, in the right hand, in his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Sound familiar? It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, for I am the first and the last. The Lord's compassion is there, is met with this narrative here in Matthew 17. Look back with me. They fell on their faces, verse 6, and were terrified. Phobos, they were terrified nearly to death. And verse 7 says, but Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. You have the glory of Christ that was revealed. You have Christ's mixed responses, the initiation of mixed responses from this glory revelation. And then finally, you have Christ comforting the fears of his disciples, they fell down. And what does it say? Verse seven, Jesus came and touched them. Rise and have no fear. Fear not, he comforts them. The Lord will crush you, he'll crush me so that we will wake up and kind of repent of ourselves, repent of our sins. He'll do that for us. He'll shake us up. He'll show us, he'll confront us with his glory, with the glory of the word of God, with the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and we'll be crushed under that, and then he'll restore us and bring us up. It's an endearing pastoral step. He drew near to his terrified friends. It was the glory of Christ mingled with the awe-filled presence of the Father that crumbled and crushed the disciples to a yielded submission Jesus wanted them to listen. The father wanted them to listen and they would to embrace his will. And at that point, Jesus says, okay, enough, rise and have no fear. And verse eight is amazing because there's an eerie hush over this mountaintop. It says, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Everything's silent, just Jesus. You have no more Moses, no more Elijah, No more laser light show. No more transfiguration. There he is. They never forgot it. But now it's just Jesus. His humanity in the foreground now. They lifted their eyes and they saw no one but Jesus only. Jesus has made his point. He had revealed his glory. He was validated by the Old Testament saints. And he was confirmed by his heavenly father. All the other parties are gone. There's an eerie hush over their environment. It's only Jesus and there's grace and comfort. And this leaves one final question. Would they learn this lesson? Will you listen to Jesus? That's the lesson. 
Are you willing to listen to Jesus? All of this is done. And now it's just you and Jesus. Will you listen to me? Will you follow me? Into suffering. Will you listen? Did they listen? Listen now with all of what I've just taught you as a background to what Peter says about this account in 2 Peter 1, beginning at verse 16. Listen to what he says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We didn't make this story up. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, we were honored and esteemed to go up this mountain. That's my words. When we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have... Have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Stop there. Basically, Peter is saying, look, we were there. We didn't make this up. It's not a made up story. It's not a myth. We actually saw the glory of the Lord. We never forgot it. It was amazing. I was with my best friends and there with Jesus. And I, we heard the Father affirm Jesus. It's an incredible event, incredible experience. It was the glory of God on display. Did Peter listen? Well, he still stumbled and bumbled, right? He still fumbled the ball when he was tested, when Jesus was taken to the cross. But something grounded him. For the mission and ministry. Something grounded him to go into the battle to suffer for Jesus. And that was this. Not the event. The event was the validation that Jesus is who he said he was. And we should listen to his message. But something happened in Peter's heart. And that is the conviction of the Holy Spirit with the word of God. He says, we have something more sure. More sure than even the transfiguration is the word of God, the conviction that this is all true, that it's all real. It's the prophetic word. He says, knowing, first of all, verse 20, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's interpretation. This isn't made up. This isn't just mumbo jumbo or people writing a book and saying, this is our version of a holy book. No, it's not produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word of God was written down by the moving of the Holy Spirit through the lives and personalities and skills of the people who wrote it. We have the inspired word of God and we believe it. We believe it to the point that we are willing to follow Jesus wherever he wants us to go. Let me ask you again, are you listening to Jesus? Is he convicting you with his word? Is he telling you to go and do certain things? Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. We need to listen to God's instruction. Listen to the more sure word in your heart as we journey together.